Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have something of a celebrity as my guest, uh, Erica Cool. Erica has spent the last 18 years operating communities in the enterprise space, and her claim to fame is despite a lot of pushback and a lot of resistance, she built the Salesforce community, and she ran that for over 11 years as their VP of community. Erica, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Would you mind giving the audience a 60, 90 second rundown on your history and uh, what qualifies you to talk about community? Yeah, sure. So 6090 was I started at Salesforce nearly two decades ago. To give a little uh, framing, that was when the company had about 175 employees. I was hired to actually teach, write, and deliver their admin workshop program, which why that's important to this part of the story is that that is when I got the idea of community. Back then, there was no place for anyone to go after they attended training. So I wanted to create that place. And that is, back then, was not called community, but that was the community. I pitched that idea and got laughed out of the room, but I knew it would work. I persevered. I'm a very stubborn person, and I made it happen. So anyway, long story short, you know, it was a, quite a journey proving value of community, but it worked. And now built it into a strategic differentiator, I think, for Salesforce. Took a step out to do that for more industries now. I feel passionate that they need more. So now I'm out on my own and I'm trying to help other people really, really see the value of community that way. So uh, I've got to ask you a slightly off the wall question. Where did you learn to be stubborn? Who taught you? (laughs) Well, I suppose it came from my brother who was a total goody two-shoes. We're very, very different. I suppose you don't know me in that sense. You know, I was the rebel of the family and I had to work hard for everything and he kind of got things very easily. And so I think I got my perseverance and stubbornness from from just having to work hard to to really achieve everything. Excellent. And where's that accent from? Because it's that... Uh, does that have anything to do with the stubbornness? <laughs> I bet you think, I, I want to find out where you think I'm from. Everybody always thinks I'm from this one particular place and I'm actually not, but I think it comes into uh, my I, I'm, 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 As a Brit, I'm hearing a bit of New York. Um, yeah, that, but, so I am not from New York, but my family all is. So probably uh-huh. probably all seeped in from some... Something from my youth. I'm the only one that is, I'm a native Californian, but I've got a lot of Jersey and New York in me. (laughs) It's interesting. Your values and belief systems begin 75 years before birth and you inherit them through grandparents and parents. Love it. So that's a really interesting thing. If you've um, ever studied TA, your scripting goes back 75 years. So from birth, then wherever you're, grandparents were. That makes sense because I def- I grew up Jewish and my family history, obviously they're also Jewish, but they're Eastern European Jewish. So it's a tough path. So that's we a, probably a got a lot of path. that from there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of resilience there. Excellent. Yes. Okay. So that frames where we are. There and you go. Now let's talk about community. What is it? Um, is it social media? Is mm-hmm. it creating a following? Is it, I don't know, uh, advocacy? (laughs) Well, I feel, yeah, I'm like, hmm, you're starting (laughs) off quick, aren't you? (laughs) 
I have a very distinct perspective on what the definition of community is. I think the problem with community, at least right now and where we are, is that it means a lot of different things to a lot of people. Me, I'm I'm passionate that means a combination of engaging, supporting, advocating, and learning. All of those things to me bubble up to community with a big C. I suppose you can look at little C as different ways, but for me, big C... The customer is right at the center of that. So they're the ones that you focus on. And they expect that all of those things are connected in some way. And really what happens is they get very bifurcated in most organizations. But when they are connected, they don't all have to sit in one organization. But when they're all connected, it's very harmonious. And then you get a very strong capital C community. So that's what it means to me. Learning, engaging, supporting, and advocating. (laughs) There you go. Excellent. Okay, so let's start with the bad, not the good. What causes communities to fail um, in their uh, intent? A couple of things that I see big mistakes. One is that you don't know why you're doing it. Because it's hard to understand, you just, and you kind of think it's trendy right now, community is a little bit of a trendy word, but you don't know the definition of it for your particular organization. You just jump in and you think, I'm going to go buy a tool. I'm going to go buy a platform without really having an understanding of what it is that you're trying to do in the first place. That's hard work. It's hard work to take a step back and say, what am I doing this for? Am I doing this to reduce churn? Am I doing this to... um, beef up sales? Am I doing this to build loyalty? Am I doing this to reduce case offsets to self-service? You have to really get clear on what it is that you're trying to do. So I find that that's a big mistake. You get yourself locked in. So a lot of times I get parachuted into these organizations. They've already picked a tool, but yet they haven't done any of the work to figure out what what on earth they're doing. And then I'm trying to build this strategy with this either very slimmed down tool or too bulky of a tool or just the wrong tool together. So that's the problem. That's problem number one. Well, I don't know about number one. That's one of the problems. The other problem is they make the investment. We do the work to prioritize it and they decide not to invest in it in the proper way. They decide that they don't want to put a person that that's going to run it. And this is the one that makes me cuckoo because community is very public. It is the it is a brand facing thing. It is it is the voice. It is the tone. It is everything. You live one hundred percent out loud, and then you're going to put someone that you've just pulled from university or that's a social media manager running a Twitter handle, and you're going to put them as the face and the brand to engage the maybe the very first thing that your customers engage with. It's it's mind boggling to me. Oh come on, Erica! What harm can they do? Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, it's no problem at all. My God, I mean, like it makes me it makes me crazy because I now I spend a lot of my time just proving that they need to put somebody as senior as possible. I try to like bubble up as senior as possible, or let me coach and guide and mentor someone that's as senior as possible, so that you know I can I can get them set up because I just can't even understand putting that person out there. And setting setting the voice, you know, I'm not saying that I'm all that, 
But the the tone and voice of the Salesforce community, just like you're saying that we get branded 75 years in advance, like the tone and voice starts very early on in a community. I'm a I'm kind of a quirky, goofy person, but I'm very dedicated and I'm focused and I have the customer in my right mind. That's my first focus. And you can see that in the early days of the Salesforce community and today. It's not all me, but like it it happens early stages, just like um, you know, nature nurture with children, you know. So Okay. So what are the qualities? Yeah. Characteristics that make up a great community manager. You know, they, for me, they don't, they're right now not necessarily rooted in experience, traditional experience, because this population is just growing. But I would say that they are more, they're more social, like mental characteristics, like sociology or um, psychology characteristics. So it's about number one, empathy, empathy, like, if nothing else, empathy is probably the number one characteristic that every community professional needs to have. So empathy is huge. I think really understanding people's motivations and understanding what how to tap into their their own personal currency is very important. So highly, really understanding that it's not the same for everybody, but different people have different motivating factors. So that's another one. Having the ability to have sat on a support capacity is also hearing people's problems that they're having and knowing when to escalate, knowing what to farm out. Like sometimes if you don't have this in you, you escalate everything because you think everything's a burning fire. Sometimes people just want to be listened to. Sometimes they just want to be the voice and being very, very transparent yet professional. Um, Again, these are all like characteristics, but you know, you have to live out loud. You have to be able to say no, and this is why, and yes, or we're trying, or thank you for that feedback. Here's the process that's going to happen. If you don't have these this ability and you're you're nervous about confrontation or you don't have a thick skin and you can't hear it, then this might not be the, the business for you. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, again, what I find when I'm recruiting is... Yeah skills, experience, and historical results actually typically are less important as predictors of success than habit, attitude, and the ability to adapt and learn. So I'm delighted that you sort of threw the experience piece out. If we're looking at the day-to-day habits that are required to manage a community effectively, and by manage, uh, I recognize it's not about control. Let's position that first of all. But how how do you help uh, run an efficient community and what are the habits that you need? Oh boy, I feel like I could pull up a job description and just rattle off a bunch that I've written time and time again. I suppose they're somewhat of the traditional things that you would expect because this is is never a, uh, well, not never, because I am seeing some very exciting strategies that are debunking what I'm about to say, but they're rarely staffed in a huge way. So you're generally starting off as one person, maybe two, if you're lucky, because we're still in the stage of proving the value of a of community within organizations. And then they start to grow from there, but they're they're pretty small teams. 
So these individuals are like crazy multitaskers and they are incredible cross-functional relationship builders. They have to be because community is a team sport. It is in the, going back to what I said at the beginning, each one of those areas has different value propositions. It has different, different ways that they, um, that they should engage with the community. So this person needs to be able to build relationships across all of those functions. And I wouldn't ever expect that a community team gets massive because a hub and spoke model is generally my, my recommendation where just like in the old days of, of like social, social lived in one single place until they recognized and realized that value and content came from other parts of the organization. Then you empowered them to, um, really build their own little mini social presence and teams. And there still was that center of excellence. So that's kind of the way that it works best. So on a day-to-day basis, you're basically listening a ton. You're connecting a ton. So you're not the one that's creating the content yourself, hopefully at first. You're getting other people to do that. If it's early days, you're getting subject matter experts within the organization. You're empowering them to do it until the self-service starts to come into play. That's your strategy. So you're, you're immediately attaching and empowering your, your community members to connect, asking them why they did that, learning their motivations, and then connecting them to other people saying, hey, I saw this question and I know this person has the answer. So you're starting to like almost make the connection. So they end up being their day-to-day like the host of a party. When they come in, if the bar, if someone's not immediately there to say, hey, welcome, here's where the bathroom is. Here's what, the, what we're serving food-wise today. Do you have any allergies? Do you, like, do you like what we're serving to drink? Here's another person that is similar to you. Then you're, it's going to fail. So they're doing a ton of that, that engagement right off the bat and always, always doing that. So does it make sense then to have community members express their interests, their preferences, even at a high level so that you can start finding birds of a feather. Yeah, I mean, that would be an an excellent idea to do on onboarding. So excellent onboarding happens really early. And when they are starting to come to your community, ideally you're asking them a series of very important questions that lead to an outcome. So you're not just asking them to ask them. Ideally, maybe even you have a CRM that can pull some of the information already so they don't have to repeat. But in lieu of that, asking them important information for that particular business, like whether it's a product interest area or a, where they live geographically to connect them with local groups or special interests that they have or how long they've been a customer for connecting people for mentorship opportunities. So those things should then dictate a personalized experience that they have so that when they enter, it's almost like you have, you could like scan an RFID and they they enter a bar and you'd already know everything that they like, you know, that would be the dream state. So you're just like, yeah, go, Hey, we have vegan food over here because it sounds like you're vegan. You know, like that would be the ideal to curate the experience so that it's somewhat personalized right from the start. And uh, are there any really good examples out there of communities that do this brilliantly? You know, I get a lot of my inspiration in this category from the way consumer businesses, the B2C world. I think they do a really good job with this. Uh, My favorite example is, and I haven't looked recently, but I liked this and I got inspired, was a company called Stitch Fix. 
And Stitch Fix is a place where you can get, you can fill out a profile and then they send you a box of clothing based on your profile attributes. And then, so basically like I would say, I work from home, I have two children, I vacation in Mexico once a year and I'm, I'm mostly athletic in nature. I don't know, like whatever the case may be. And then they, they learn and they match me with someone who can help me. And then they send me a curated box. Now, I know it's a weird example, but what ends up happening then is as I get, as I change my preferences and as now I never travel, because before maybe I traveled all the time. So I needed clothes that were particular to travel. Now I don't travel. I change my preferences. It changes my experience. It changes that, that box of clothing that comes. So your community is never static. Everybody changes all of the time. So I think Salesforce actually does a pretty decent job of this in an onboarding flow. Um, and then when you are dumped into the community, it feels like you already have recommendations of people to meet that are like you, groups that they belong to, that you should belong to, content you should read and stuff like that. So it's, those are, I think, so Salesforce has a decent job. I mean, gosh, I don't know, like the, and that, all of their consumer, a lot of the consumer companies do a great job of this. Sephora does a great job of this. I could go on and on. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So then let's talk about community and the underlying philosophy of what community really means to its members. Well, I guess you have to figure that out early day, but there is always some glue that holds the community together. And that is the responsibility of the person building the community to figure out what that glue is initially. What is that like connective function? Is it, is it that it's the product that connects it? Is it a mission and a movement that connects it? You know, what, what is that thing? So it really is different for so many different businesses. It's really hard to, um, to answer that question just like outright okay. because it's very different for different but the the reality is you have to figure it out you have to you know in essence the the way i started the salesforce community was product based i i taught students they shared so many incredible ideas with each other i watched it happen in person and then i listened to so much of their feedback and brought it back to the organization so i knew that their connective tissue was they used salesforce and they wanted to use it more effectively, more efficiently. They felt alone. They were distributed. So you have to like figure out what it is, the glue. But I've been working with other communities that are more mission-based. You know, they, they're more connected on like the position of work or a culture. It's more like a culture movement and changing the, the, the culture of work. Or it could be a networking building. They want to connect other people to be inspired to learn how to use the product better or, or be more um, efficient in their business. I mean, okay. I could go on and on. Okay. In terms of establishing clear ground rules, because I think yes. we've got to uh, try and avoid turning it into the Twitter sphere. How do we prevent a community by having clear ground rules and levels of respect from descending into chaos and primeval uh, slime? Yeah. Some of that's going to happen. You, uh, this is, you said something earlier about control. And one thing you, you, a characteristic you can't have if you are a community builder is a control freak because you have to let things go. You have to take your hands off the wheel. But to your point about ground rules, you have to have ground rules. 
you have, it's probably more important than anything else that you have solid legal terms and conditions that are specific to your community. Lay out what is in bounds and what is out of bounds and how do you escalate? Because if not, trust will be gone and they will never come back because trust is tantamount. So almost in any community, trust is going to be a huge, huge factor of success. And so for me, it's you need to like get close to that legal team and partner with them, explain the vision and values of what you're trying to do. It's going to blow their brains off because they don't, they like control generally. Risk mitigation is their world, but you have to explain the value they're going to get by doing that and then help you create an environment that allows them to own it, but yet lay some ground rules and do that. So, and moderation, you, that person or a people, they have to be there. You have to staff it appropriately, especially at the beginning and actually forever because nastiness happens and you have to work on empowering your community to be your eyes and ears and to be the protector of your community. And that takes work. You have to teach that behavior, model the behavior, and then they can be the ones that help step in on your behalf when things start going south. Um, and then you can mitigate some of that, that behavior. Yeah. And just know that there's certain parts of community that breed a little bit more swirl than others, like product feedback. That's, there's a bit of swirl that happens in that world that needs a little bit more work, a little more transparency, a little more handholding. So that you just have to really be, you used to be hands-on uh, all the time, but yet not controlling. What, what are the qualities of good moderators then? Oh, geez. Well, I mean, it's similar, I suppose. It's not entirely different from any of the things that I mentioned uh, before, but I think thick skin is huge. You know, you're just going to hear and see it all. I literally could tell you a thousand stories of the craziest, craziest shit that has gone on. Oh, wait, am I not allowed to swear? Sorry. No, you, no, you are. Absolutely. Okay. You can say anything you like. There okay, are no good. limits. But anyway, the, there's the craziest stories that go on. So you, you need to have this level of like calmness and just understanding how to work through the process. You know, there you got to have a process in place of what you know, reminding people of the terms and explaining that you can't say those things and then trying to, to mitigate it yourself by having a conversation, knowing when to have a conversation and then knowing when to escalate and how. It's just a, a level of process that that moderator needs to follow. They aren't generally as senior as maybe the community strategist. So they just need to be able to understand really how to, how to not fly off the handle, follow a process and just be really truly empathetic to at the beginning and uh, leaning into that that's just a characteristic that everybody has um yeah I mean, it's okay, a tough job helpful. it's a tough job uh, excellent okay um and what are community strategists what do they do day to day for me that that role is the one that connects with the organization and brings what's happening on the community to the organization i mean they do a million things but that's one of the big ones so the idea is that you're getting value out of the community. The, the company itself needs to also get value. Otherwise, it won't grow. Uh, it, won't, it won't continue to get funded and prioritized. So you're hearing things directly from customers. You might even be 
one of the few parts of the organization that gets unfiltered direct insights from, from your customers. So being able to package up those insights and feed them to the organization in the way that's going to make them better at their jobs or inviting them and proving the value to them so that they engage on the community to hear those insights for themselves. So it's a very much a, a conduit from the community to, to the company and continuing to just show the value, bring that, bring that to the executives, show how they can get involved, show how they should listen. These are like characteristics and, and roles that they play in, in this process. Okay, that's interesting. I'm not talking necessarily about control, but uh, in terms of balancing uh, a cadence of regular structured activity versus laissez-faire activity where the yeah. community kind of blossoms and uh, <clears throat> uh, burgeons on its own, what advice would you give to people uh, in terms of mapping out regular events, then giving people carte blanche to go off and do their own thing? This is a lot at the beginning. You have to map out these more structured events because it doesn't just happen. You need to provide people opportunity and show them how to get engaged. So I'm a huge fan of building solid engagement strategies and mapping those to what matters most to the, the organization. So people like regularity, and especially in a new community that needs to remain vibrant. So they need to continue to have regularly scheduled programming. So whether that is product managers that are presenting to about a, a new feature and or doing ask me anythings on every friday or you know having some kind of regularity maybe every week that they can return back or a, a prompt that you're asking so you're you're get you're bringing people into the conversation regularly and then hooking the community into all parts of the business. So you're having a steady flow of traffic so that it's not just like this thing that sits off on its own that you're constantly trying to, that you're weaving it into the fabric of the entire organization, whether that is a call to action from a knowledge article or um, on your main website or at the end of a training class or you know, regular campaigns that are driving people to activities. You have to do this. This is how it feels like a, a natural extension of your organization. So they don't have to be as explicit. You're just, they're naturally coming uh, to the community on their own behalf. And then for me, it's about inspiring other parts of the organization to leverage the platform for their particular needs. So one of the ways you can do that is like onboarding at scale for a company. That's usually very hard to do. It's hard to onboard if you have an at-scale business to give that feeling of personalization, not just like the ones that pay you a ton, ton of money. So you can do that using the community. You can create a space where people come. As soon as they sign up, they onboard into this group and there there'll be people to capture them and to nurture them and give them best practices, not only from the company, but also the community. So some can be more like flow-based, some can be more event-based, some can be more prompt-based, but there needs to be a strategy. And that strategy can start small and it can evolve over time to the point where everybody is having their engagement going on. Or like you said, the community then takes over and they're spinning up their own special interest groups based on what they want and they're creating their own events. Um, I've seen incredible things happen like that. In fact, I 100% agree to this that usually the community figures it out first. And they inspire me to then create program around the good things that they've sent, they've created. Like 
they um, are struggling with a particular product or a particular adopting a certain product. And so they create a group. And it doesn't mean they necessarily know how to do it, but it's like a call to action of like, we're all here rallied together, like get it together, come here and figure this out. Or they start a mentorship group because they know they want to connect with each other to inspire them for career changes. And then I'm like, oh my God, that's incredible. We got to create a program around that and not take it over, but partner with them and then just create more rigor, create more uh, support, maybe money or marketing. And so I'm always inspired by what I see in a community. And that is another role that a community strategist or a community director of community does is they listen and they like, oh, that's a really good idea. We should pull that out and supercharge it. So does um, a director of community uh, sit within the marketing team or are they part of a strategic advisory board? Oh gosh, this question is so crazy because I don't, the answer is they sit all over the damn place. The dream state is that it is a C-level function of an organization. So just like you have these other functions in an organization that are supposed to serve the whole company, like you would never have a finance organization only serve marketing or only serve product. Their their charter is they They're a service to the whole business. So the idea is that that's what community is supposed to do. It's supposed to serve the entire company and your entire customer base. And so that's that's what I'm saying. It should be. There should be a chief community officer that rolls up to the CEO and that it is mandated, bless you, I think, (laughs) creative muting. Good job. It's mandated to serve all the organizations in the way a community should do. Now, that's not reality in most cases, although you're seeing a few of these happen. But in the ways that they don't, lately, they're rolling up to a marketing leader, an innovative marketing leader that understands that they should sign up for a cross-functional charter. You're also seeing them, in some cases, roll up to customer success. That's also really good. That aligns directly with usually the goals. You know, it kind of... it's. I go back and forth with this because ultimately I want this role to sit where the money is because where the money is is where the action is. And that's going to give it the most awareness and the most prioritization. So in lieu of sitting at the sea level lately, it seems marketing is the flavor of the month or the flavor of the year. I sat in the product organization at Salesforce very particularly because it was hard to at the time, aligned with the goals of marketing being strictly lead generation focused. They didn't have at the time that I was there, the creativity to see beyond that. So it's a constant uphill battle to fight for the alignment. So I moved into the product organization because community, at least at Salesforce, was like a golden goose. It was like, here, product organization, here's everything you need to know about building great product or hearing insights into the experience of how they, you know, and it was, so they got it right away. So it made sense there. But ultimately I was charging towards this, trying to (laughs) build it. It didn't happen, but charging towards a C-level type of engagement at Salesforce, but you know, it didn't happen. Okay. So what are the differences between a commercial community build like you just described and one that is mission-based and not-for-profit? 
Are there any nuances that one needs to bear in mind for the latter? Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. It's not the same programming at all. I mean, you don't have, the glue is not necessarily the product. The, that could come later. And I do think that at, the, at some point there is a service or a product that will benefit from it, but it's a very different type of programming and it has more to do with network building. So that the programs you put in place are more about connecting like-minded people, whether that is virtually or in person. So generally that's the emphasis of that. And then the online presence maybe comes later. Well, I mean, sadly the world has changed, but that used to be the way it was, is that those type of communities have this really strong affinity for connecting in in person. You still can virtually in person, but that's the programming is more about that. And then the product stuff might come later. So I'd say those are like fundamentally some of the big differences right away is that people to people connection programming is the emphasis in a in a mission based. Okay. So I'm gonna go a little bit self-serving here because uh, tomorrow <laughs> and uh, next week I'm launching this community sales of yeah. force for good. And there have been two, three hundred people who've signed up to attend the launches. I did break LinkedIn apparently because uh, I uh, decided to go down uh, on my original. Um, oh, shame. And I've got a bunch of people. It may have worked in my favor because a bunch of people have volunteered and they want to help. But I, I have no idea how to do this. I, I've built followings in the past, but I don't want a follower. I want this thing to be organic. And the, the mission is very clear. Sales has been corrupted over the last 40, 50 years into becoming transactional, self-serving. There was a McKinsey study that came out that said 67% of buyers consider sales and salespeople to be morally bankrupt. And that's (laughs) not my experience. I see sales as a powerhouse. Our job is to serve the customer, help them deliver their outcomes. And like you, I believe we have to put the customer at the heart of everything we do. And we need to create buyer safety. Now, they need to trust us. We have to be relevant. We have to be of service. We have to be rigorously authentic. We have to get down and dirty and help them solve their problems. It's us with them against their problems. What I'd like to do is create the conditions for the next generation of sales leaders to build the right kind of sales culture that mm-hmm. isn't all about growth at any cost, that isn't all about just the acquisition of logos and a rapid exit. Right. I want salespeople to be uh, prospecting for customers who are going to be customers 10, 15, 20 years down the road. I don't right. want them prospecting to hit their quota for this month. And what I'd like is for it ultimately to become an aspirational career choice, along with airline pilot, doctor, and fireman. So for that kind of movement to take off and not just suddenly stall. What advice would you give to me? You have to document that because that uh, that's something that people, it's almost like an identity that you're trying to build or like a motto or a, a movement. You know, I would put you in the movement category first. So people need to know what you're all about. They can't be confused. You know, I think that one of the bravest things I ever heard and that, that I latched onto was, Everything, most everything that's said about you is said behind closed doors when you're not there. And so you need to have just, yeah. And so you need crystal clarity around what it is about you and your movement so that when somebody hears those 
buying signals of, of what you just said. They're like, oh, Marcus is your guy. Like he's got this amazing community called Sales of Force for Good. You got to go. You got to go there. So it's like, what is your, what's your like quick and dirty elevator pitch about your mission that's going to drive them in there? And then when they're there, they have to very quickly be welcomed by the people that also feel like them. So you just don't want to turn, you might want to turn people off actually in, in a sense like yours. You want people to open the door, the virtual door and be like, I belong here. I belong here because of these reasons. And so that's something that I think that, you you know, from a mission-based and a movement-based, what you're trying to do, that needs to happen. And then when they get there, you know, they need to feel like there's low bar ways for them to start connecting with you. The difference between a following is that it's, that's just generic. You don't have to do any, it's just you. But this, you're trying to actually get people to engage with one another to bring this mentality back to their businesses, right? I mean, that's what you're ultimately trying to do is change mentalities of big industries that have these very traditional or new startups that are just early days. It could change the culture right away. So there needs to be like almost like change management tactics of how do you take something that's very traditional in nature, break it down and bring it back towards your organization, give people like real actionable things that they can do to get on this movement with you. So that's to start. I think that's how you start getting people to move into getting to saying, yes, I'm in here for you to then starting to to participate and actually make change. Interesting. I I mean, I've kind of given up on my generation because I think we've created the problem. Um, Yeah, yeah. so I'm looking at the Gen Z and millennial yeah. um, because you know, 60% of uh, managers are now millennials, but they're often the ones caught between the rock and the hard place, um, between the, uh, the target, the burnout, the turnover, and then all this pressure coming down from investors and from leadership and senior management. I think the, the, the people that, who are going to be able to create lasting change will be those middle managers. Salespeople, absolutely, they, they should play their part and they're the managers of the future potentially. But it, it just strikes me that we have to be quite selective about who yeah. we attract. Because yeah, that's right. Letting go, letting go of what kind of made you successful as you clawed your way up the corporate ladder. That's very difficult. And it it takes leaders who either have less to lose or are very brave. And I don't underestimate the enormity of the task. Um, Right. And that's why I think you have to be very, you have to be very specific in this group. That's, that's why it's so important to think through all of these things, which like, are you just trying to create a big group to create another big group? There's plenty of sales groups out there, but like, what are you, what are you about? Who is your people? Is it about student engagement? Is it about getting into universities, talking to professors about changing curriculum? Is it about starting? Like there's a whole opportunity to start really diving into a, if it truly is a new generation of people that are willing, because what I know about this generation, I have a teenager, two teenagers, and they are so mission driven early on because it, there's just something very special about what they're exposed to now that they get very passionate very early and they're very 
they're very uh, adaptable, you know, to what they see on things like TikTok and what they see on Snapchat, you know, that's their world. And there's, there might be some really interesting new ways that you go to try to, if you truly are saying you want to change the future, that you might need to change and adapt your strategy. A cookie cutter thing isn't the way community works. You just have to figure out your thing. Then you build the platforms and programs or tap into the platforms and programs that exist where they are. Uh, Well, again, I'm perfectly happy to steal. I'm a firm believer talent creates and genius steals. So if there's something that I I can uh, tap into, that would be great. One of the things that I've realized through working with friends of mine like Gary Mitchell, who are fantastic at driving lasting transformational change Mm -hmm. is that we need to narrow the focus and pick five maximum of maybe eight things that will get us 80% of the way there. And so what we say no to, I think, is going to be really important. The way I've been picturing this, but again, I'm really looking for other people to uh, (laughs) throw their hat in the is that each month we take one particularly shitty, gnarly problem and we look at why it's broken and then we go away, we spend time in places like Clubhouse and other community or other Mm -hmm. platforms. Mm -hmm. We discuss it, we uh, test things out, we bring them into our businesses and then we capture the lessons. Um, So I know one of the things I'm going to have to have is a group of people who are very good at capturing the lessons and then using a tool like Miro or Mural yep. to capture mm-hmm. all of that, make that freely available. So the, yeah. the other objective here is all the insights uh, will be freely available. It's absolutely a not-for-profit. Now, the question that I have here, uh, because I've had two different perspectives, is should it be entirely free to be involved? Or should there be some ele- chargeable element so that people have skin in the game? And that I'm really wrestling with, because to my mind, I think it should be free. But when I spoke to uh, an expert uh, in community that you pointed me towards, Mm. her uh, view that it should be chargeable. And I'm wrestling with that. Your thoughts? Oh, gosh. Oh, it's so hard. It's hard to make these distinctions when you know very little about it. But I don't think you maybe need to choose one way or the other. You can do both. I think, you know, it could be one of those things where you can get paid core and then have a broader network that's free and there's differentiation between the two. People that have that want to benefit from it just in a light, lighter way, but then you have a core constituent that gets more when they pay. That's a really common, that can be a common thing that you strive towards. Obviously, there's a differentiation between the two and what they get and the type of engagement that they get and the type of network that they build. So I think it can be a combination of both where you can gate certain experiences. That might be a way to go, go forward with it. But I feel like just hearing the enormity of what you're trying to do, you need to inspire probably a younger generation and they don't have money. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know no. if... Uh, you know, if I would pay, if I'm trying to put my, I'm nearing a, an individual that's going to be in college at some, in the near future, you know, I could, I could see her being really inspired by something like this, making change at an organization, but would she pay? I don't know. So maybe there's a way that you can weave in both where you have the core leaders, because you need leadership that already is rooted in this cause that has 
lived with it and breathed it and wants the change, that might be your core constituent. And then you could have this broader pool that it's almost like the signed petition style. Like everyone can sign the petition, but that core group is the one that's making change. I don't know. Just like a okay. off the cuff spitball. It, it's fair. And it was a, a shitty question to ask uh, given the limit. Mean. Uh, it's mean. I know. I'm known for it. I think there are certain questions going through my mind in terms of what are the five things that will get us 80% of yeah. the way we want to get? Yeah. How do we create a, an environment of lifelong learning? Because I don't think this is ever going to be a one and done. It needs to evolve. And I think part of the problem for many sales organizations and salespeople is they kind of stick to what's familiar and they right. don't adapt. And I think we've got to establish clear values um, early. Yeah. I think we need to define the behaviors that define who we are. And we also need to look at what we measure, right. how we drive performance, how we compensate. I yeah. think we need to look at how we lead. And a really important one is how do we behave in times of adversity? Because um, uh, again, very often that really defines the character of an organization. Yeah, that's um, why this is like, a, this has a top-down element and a bottoms-up element and even a middle element because you. what I do know about this, the younger generations is they are so much more mission-driven and they were, they're picking companies not just based on the standard stuff that we used to pick companies based on, but they're truly understanding their core values and, and the culture of the company is why they're picking companies. And so if you can inspire companies to understand that they will get better talent if they change the way that they build their sales organizations, then those that talent will pick them based on those reasonings. So you have to work on them and you have to work on them. And then that middle is the, the education component. That's why I keep going back to the education component because I think about or they're starting to teach sales in universities. It's interesting that it's kind of like a newer thing. I mean, I, I was in the business school and they didn't teach me any, there were no sales classes. Now there's sales clubs right, and there's you, sales you, classes. You got yeah. taught marketing and strategy, right? Uh, but you didn't and, and get uh, taught yeah. how to uh, develop people and you didn't get taught how to sell. Uh, right. And, I, and I, I was baffled crazy. by MBAs. That... Yeah, me too. But now that it's actually starting, there are lots of courses on this now and there are clubs. And so you got to get it to that level too and, and really help, but you... They won't change if they know that the organizations are not changing to match them. You know, they they're behind. They're way behind. So it's it's very layered. This kind of movement strategy is, you know, building the relationships with organizations, big organizations. That's why that core constituency of leaders is key. You've got to inspire the younger generation and you've got to crack into the the education organization. I think those are like the three pillars that are going to actually make this happen because I feel like if one is not there or the other, it might, it's very difficult. It might be very difficult to make this change. It's fascinating. I've been racking my brains how to make this as smooth as possible, but I recognize that the friction is probably where some of the best ideas will come from. Oh, absolutely. Well, you could think about having this core constituency built of all three of those different types of people. You could have young, hugely skilled young leaders that are in new organizations. You can have a combination of seasoned veterans in sales organizations, like heads of sales that are either like, can give you what they did wrong, or and then you can have like very successful seasoned sales people. 
and a combination, I feel like it's going to get you where you need to be. And then, and, and then professors, like maybe actually some educators are in the education space, all, com- all combined in your core constituency of, of that's your board of directors almost, you know, get them all together. And I think that's where magic will happen is you have all those voices that are represented versus like only seasoned veterans or only young leaders. I just don't think you're going to get it. I'm with you 100%. I mean, my experience is that where organizations recruit deliberately diverse types of people, mm-hmm. and that's not just gender and ethnicity. No. Um, it's people from different age groups. What they do is they bring different perspectives and different experience right. to them, which right. means that you end up with a 360 view. And also people with a broad range of experience as well. Right. Because what range does is it gives you the ability to join the dots where uh, people from a very specialized field will typically have blinkered perspective. Um, And that's definitely what I want to attract. Um, But trying to orchestrate and choreograph all of that sounds like bloody hard work. Um, yeah, that's, so, that's why uh, building community is hard. People think it's so easy, but it's actually very hard when you try to do it right. <laughs> let's wrap up on that point. Yeah. Um, because it, it does strike me that the closer I get to the launch, the uh, more my stomach <laughs> roils with the prospect of it all going horribly wrong. It's a risk well worth taking. So mm-hmm. what is it that you can do to mitigate some of that difficulty? Who are the vital core that you need to have around you in order to ensure that you you get through that get through the rapids and the bumpy ride i mean i don't mean to sound too simplistic but it's your customers if you do your homework and you plan out the things that you think are most important to you and then you bring that to your core constituency of customers then they're going to lead the way they're going to vet vet it for you. I've never launched a strategy without talking to what I think are my core persona first. I don't know everything. I can't possibly know everything. So I, going back to what I said is the customers think of the best ideas first. So I just give them some bumpers, some guidelines and some frameworks. So it's not just like blue sky. And I say, does this resonate with you? Would you participate? You want to come along this ride with me? And then I start small. I soft launch always. I like get a core group of people, get them very excited and inspired, get them modeling the behaviors I want. And I get them to be along the journey with me. So I wouldn't do it ever alone. And that it's not like that's hundred percent bound for success, but so far, so good for me is that every program I've launched, I've done it with them or in reaction to something that they told me they wanted. And it matches with what the business wanted. And it matches with the persona that we're trying to achieve and, or the, the goals. And it, it generally works better. And they steer you away from problems. Oftentimes I'll go to them with a framework and they'll be like, that's garbage. That's a garbage framework. How are you ever going to pull that off? Or here's what that's going to, that sends a message to me. And I'm like, whoa, thank God. I like course correct and go a different direction. And and I'm set up for success. So I know that's a simplistic answer, but it's kind of like the only thing um, I actually, can think of. Actually, it's been, it's been really helpful because the one constituency that I hadn't really considered is bringing customers into this, which is a blinding flash of the bloody obvious. Um, <laughs> but um, what, why not start with yes. going to customers and asking them, have they seen better? What does great look yeah. like? 
And what do they need? I think that's a fabulous starting point. It's been worth the the price of admission just for that. There you go. (laughs) You're Um, very welcome. Excellent. So, Erica, tell me this. What what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Well, are you asking personally or professionally (laughs) or with like, I mean, my God, I'm wrestling with all sorts of things. Uh, you know, um, for me, professionally, it's, let's, let's do the safe version. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, professionally for me, I just, I I'm still struggling with making this matter as much as I possibly can. Um, I'm only one person. I don't want to grow a team. So it's just me. So I'm trying to figure out a way to move my mission along, which is how to, make community as important as possible at companies. So it's a strategic priority. And that's trying to think about how to do that even at more scale. So it's still a struggle. I still get in and I start, I, they say it's a priority because I don't get started unless they, it's a priority. And I get in there and it's like, turns out it's kind of still segmented in one little area. So it, we have a lot of work to do. So I'm struggling with just still grappling with the same problems that I had quite frankly, 10 years ago. <laughs> so um, that's a, uh, that's still a mission of mine. I'm still on my mission. Okay. Again, this is interesting because what I'm hearing is that for you to be successful, you need to have the same skills that people who are good at partnerships and partnership selling require. Absolutely. There's a wonderful book by a chap called Fred Copestake. It's called Selling with Partnering Skills. And there is a partnering quotient test that looks at the qualities that make people um, make up great partnering skills. And mm. uh, it would definitely be worth your while having a look at that. I'll happily introduce Good. you to Fred. What you're describing here is a, a very similar model to the business that, uh, model that I'm trying to adopt, um, which is one that's built entirely on collaboration. I think success in the future will be determined by our ability to collaborate. And the key question is who, not how. When we have a how that we need to resolve, we need to work out who is the expert at doing that. For years, I've been uh, doing an exercise called the scavenger hunt. And you give the audience 20 questions that they have to go off and get the answer. And Mm -hmm. only twice in 20 years uh, have people come up to me at the front of the room and asked me the answers to those questions. I I set them on the (laughs) test. (laughs) Um, And it's a a really important lesson to learn. In fact, Dan Kennedy's book, Who Not How, is a a really good starting point as well. And the other thing I would look at is the whole concept of finite versus infinite games. Finite game players play to win or not to lose, Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas infinite game players play to keep the game going and make the pie bigger rather than take a bigger slice of a shrinking pie. And so looking for the people with that kind of philosophy, and yeah. I'd be very happy yeah. to introduce you to people in my network. Um, I would love that. Who, Those, yeah. These sound like fascinating things to me that I am very passionate about. So thank you. That would be amazing. It's my pleasure. If you were to advise people on good content to read, watch, listen to uh, around community building that's been influential on you, and if you've got a book yourself, I'm guessing... If you haven't, there's probably one in there waiting to come. <laughs> then what would you recommend people uh, pay attention to? Well, my own selfish gain, but I really don't have anything to gain other because we give it away for free. But I do a podcast with another fellow community strategist who is brilliant. 
and it's called In Before the Lock. And In Before the Lock is a nod to the old day gaming communities where stuff would get really crazy and the moderator before they would lock it, they'd all start charging forward. So you would try to get in before the lock. So that's the name of our, and it's really great for us because we, we just say it like it is too, sort of like you. And we just, we just talk long form and we, we just get everything out of our brain into other people's brains. So that I'm loving doing that. We're on episode 30, so we're still pretty new, very different than you, who's probably on episode God knows what. But all the episodes are free and they have everything that we talk about. We link in the show notes, all the resources. We create lots of guides and frameworks and strategies that we give it all away for free because we know that this is very hard to do. So I selfishly love that. But there's also lots of organizations that I'm in love with lately. There's a new one called Community Club. And they are just doing fabulous work in this space. And I'm, I'm a really big fan of them. The back end of them is called Comsor, but Community Club is their community. I'm a huge fan of them. I'm also a huge fan of CMX, which is another, uh, it's been around for quite some time. And they have great leadership over there, putting out great content, doing some certifications around community that's new. And uh, I'm just, I'm a big fan of, of them. Those are my those are like my go-to resources I that I like. I don't have a book yet. Um I'm not I'm not going to write a book like a normal book. I am going to write a book. But I think mine is going to be likely at some point like a tell-all, like a Salesforce tell-all book, <laughs> um which I think would <laughs> be very fascinating. And I think it's going to tell the story of of community through it, but it's not going to be a how-to book, you know. I think there's some really great resources out there like that. And, um, so mine's going to be more of a, more of like a biography tell all how to be at a company from 175 to 50,000 and be a, be a serial entrepreneur all the way through and and charge forward with some of those strategies. So that's going to be a little bit the way my book is. If I ever get around to doing it, which I will, I will do it. Excellent. Well, we'll talk about that after. So you've got a golden ticket. And you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Erica, age 23. What <laughs> bit of advice would you give her that you know she'd have probably ignored but would have valued or could have valued? Oh, my gosh. I think that I wouldn't be as nice. <laughs> I, I am historically such a nice person. And nice, unfortunately, doesn't really get you anywhere in the world. I think that you can stay true to yourself. But I would have been a little bit more um, bullish in my tactics and still tried to um, move forward with my strategy. But I think being nice slowed me down. And that's like the weirdest advice and kind of shitty advice. But when you say being nice, do you mean compromising rather than confronting constructively? Worrying too much about what people thought of me and like, are they going to think that I'm being to this or to that, you know, I just worry too much. So that's what I mean by nice is I, I rolled over right. too much. That is one of the masks that Michael Brody Waite writes about in his book, Lead Like a Drug Addict. Um, there are four <laughs> masks. And one of them is that they don't confront what needs to be confronted. Yeah. And yeah. as a result yeah. of that, they're always compromising. And by that, I mean the negative uh, version of yeah. compromise. Um, yes. You know, they allow people to encroach. Um, and for the last 20 years or so, I've been teaching people about having rights. 
if you don't know you have rights or you don't enforce your rights, when people ride roughshod over them, then basically you just become a doormat. And then you feel resentment, you feel anger, frustration. And uh, learning how to uh, get into constructive conflict early in your life is a really important skill. Huge. I've suffered from it as well, not so much the last 20 years. Uh, I have to admit, but yeah, my, up until my <laughs> don't, you don't come across as that kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, up until my mid thirties, I worried about what people think of me, and um, I was afraid of getting into conflict because I didn't understand the difference between constructive and destructive conflict. Yeah, right. Yeah, this right. is huge. I love that I get to teach my kids about this early, and I'm watching them put it into play. It's so amazing. And I wish so much that the 23-year-old me could have figured that out earlier. I'm happy with where I'm, I've gotten myself, but like it just probably could have been, who knows? It could have been different. <laughs> I think our scar tissue makes us who we are. Yeah, um, right. So, okay. Right. So how can people get hold of you? Well, I have a very distinct name that people generally remember as long as they know that it's spelled not C-O-O-L, but K-U-H-L. And so if, as long as you know how to spell my name, Erica with a C, cool with a K, then you can find me everywhere. So that's you've done that. Erica before. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> you think? But they that combination of my name is how you find me everywhere. I'm a fairly public person because I have to be running this kind of business. So when you search me up on Google with that or on Twitter or on LinkedIn, that's where you find me. And my website, that's what my website is. So all of the things are Erica, E-R-I-C-A, last name, K-U-H-L, and that's how you find me. It's just easy. Excellent. Erica, cool. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. This has been so much fun. I could feel like we could talk for hours and hours. (laughs) We absolutely could. So I'd love to have you back. I would love it. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And If you happen to be the owner of uh, or CEO of a tech company and you're ambitious, you want to grow your business fast and achieve real sustainable hyper growth without the wheels coming off, and you want your people to be highly engaged, not burn them out, be highly productive, be completely focused on the customer, and get customers who come back year after year after year after year, then why don't we schedule time for a brief conversation? You can reach me at marcus at laughs-last.com or DM me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.